Her close imprisonment put it wholly out of her power to procure subsistence for herself and her children by her own exertions. The circumstances connected with the arrestment of her tenants' rents are worthy of particular notice, affording as they do an example of the severe treatment which tenants who favored suffering heritors generally met with at the hands of the ordinary magistrates and, which, and in which the magistrates were encouraged and supported by the government. The instrument of arrestment was served upon her tenants on the 10th of February, 1683, at the insistence of Hugh Wallace, His Majesty's cash keeper, arresting all rents then due by them to her till the payment of her fine. This was severe enough, but it was only a part of the hardships to which, on account of her fine, they were subjected. As they had no tax, but were movable tenants, taking their land every successful year in April, they supposed, as was very reasonable, that that arrestment could only make them liable for what the old lady cavers at the time of its being served upon them, and not for the rent of the new year commencing in April 1683 when they took their lands anew. Accordingly, when the first term for the payment of the first half of the New Year's rent, which was Martinmas, arrived, Lady Cavers having called upon the tenants for the payment, they paid her about eleven hundred pounds, which amounted to about half that year's rent, and for this she granted them discharges. But to their surprise, they were summoned in the beginning of January 1684 to appear before the Sheriff of Roxburghshire on the 8th of that month, for the payment not only of what was due by them at the time of the arrestment, but also for the whole of the rent of the year commencing in the April 1683, the procurator for the pursuers urging that the arrestment served upon the tenants put them in mala fide to pay any rent to her till fine was fully paid. The tenants pleaded in their own defense that the arrestment of February 10th according to the nature of all arrestments, could only secure what was then due by them to Lady Cavers, that not having taken their lands till April thereafter, they could not be supposed at the time of the arrestment to be debtors to her for the new year commencing in April, and that as no new arrestment had ever been served upon them to put them in condition to refuse the payment of their half-year's rent to her at Martinmas, they ought not to be required to pay it again. This was thought the only equitable view of the matter by all who heard of it, and the sheriff delayed to pronounce either interlocutor or, de or decreet in the case till he had advised with his lawyers. But Meldrum's power with the sheriff so prevailed that on the 18th of January that same year he pronounced a decreet against the tenants for the payment not only of what was due by them at the time of the arrestment, but also for the payment of the rent of the subsequent year, commencing in April 1683. And this decree was pronounced against them without their ever having been summoned to hear and see either interlocutor or decreet, and sentence pronounced against them, which was contrary to the form always observed by that court when a process was taken up to be considered. In these circumstances, the tenants sent a petition to the Privy Council in the beginning of April 1684 with a paper entitled Information for Lady Caver's Tenants, both which documents contain the facts now stated. Footnote. Wardrobe Manuscripts, Volume 33, Numbers 66 and 67. End footnote. The petition concludes with these words. Quote, the which sentence, the sentence of the sheriff, 
If it shall be executed against us, and we thereby distressed to make double payment, will not only forever incapacitate us for paying any more rent, but bring us and our poor families to a starving condition. For all our goods consist of a few cattle and sheep, which through this stormy winter that lay very heavy upon our grounds are now reduced to a very small number. And if they shall be pointed and driven from us, there will be nothing remaining for us but what we can have by begging our bread in the country. May it therefore please your lordships to pity our sad and distressed condition that we may not be altogether broken and ruined, and to discharge that decree to be put in execution against us your humble supplicants, till your lordships examine the matter, and hear the business before yourselves, and your poor petitioners shall ever pray for a long and happy reign to his majesty in health and prosperity to your lordships. End quote. Reasonable as is the prayer of this petition, it was rejected. Footnote. Wadro's History, Volume 4, page 55. End footnote. By virtue of the sentence of the sheriff, letters of horning were revised against the tenants, and so severe were the proceedings against them that about the middle of May all of them were apprehended and carried by a party of Meldrum's troops to the toll booth of Jedburgh. They were indeed soon after liberated, but it was only to go home for the better making up of the money which they were required to pay. Footnote. Letter of Mr. Gladstains to Sir William Douglas, dated 24th May, 1684. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 30, Number 114. End footnote. Quote, I find, unquote, says Wadro, quote, they were so discouraged by the findings and harassings that they were put to, that had not the Laird of Cavers returned that year and got the prosecution stopped, they had all left the ground. End quote. Footnote. Wadro's History, Volume 4, page 55. To return to Lady Cavers, when she had been confined in Stirling Castle about eight months, she was induced, in consequence of the declining state of her health, to present a petition to the Privy Council, supported by the testimony of a physician, praying for liberty to go for some time to the wells in England. In answer to her petition, the Council, at their meeting on the 19th of July, 1683, quote, allow her from that date to the 15th of October to go to the wells for her health and give order and warrant to the governor or deputy governor of the castle of Stirling to set her at liberty to that effect, in regard she hath found sufficient caution acted in the books of privy council that at or betwixt the said 15th day of October she shall re-enter her person in prison within the said castle of Stirling under the penalty of 500 pounds sterling, and that during the time of her being at liberty and in this kingdom she shall live orderly under the same penalty in case of failure. End quote. Footnote. Decrees of Privy Council. End footnote. At this time, Lady Caver's eldest son, Sir William Douglas, was traveling on the continent, accompanied by his tutor, Mr. Robert Wiley, who, after the Revolution, became Minister of Hamilton. In her present circumstances, and especially as she was not without fears that though a settlement were made for her fine, this would not terminate her sufferings for nonconformity, she was naturally anxious for the return of her son, hoping that it might be in his power to procure her liberation from prison and to protect her from future hardships. Mr. Gladstains, his factor in a, le- in a letter to Sir William, dated Edinburgh, October 2, 1683, says, quote, 
It is thought by many when they see how severely others are handled for reset and converse that albeit there were some settlement made for this fine for which she, your mother, is now imprisoned, her trouble shall not end there, and whereof being now apprehensive she is the more desirous to see you here before any new trial. And if your coming home could contribute anything to her liberation, I do not doubt but you have already resolved that everything else shall give place to so natural a duty. End quote. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 30, Number 113. End footnote. To have obtained her liberty through the interposition of her son, whom she loved so tenderly, would doubtless have been highly gratifying to Lady Cavers. But the assurance that he was living a God-fearing and virtuous life would have still more gladdened her heart, whereas her hearing of or witnessing his living a life of an opposite description would have been to her a source of more poignant distress than all she had hitherto suffered or might yet suffer on account of her religious principles. As an instance of this pious solicitude for the spiritual welfare of her children, we may quote the following passage from the same letter. Quote, I doubt not, says Mr. Gladstains, but you have already heard of the little liberty granted to your mother for going to a well for her health, and that she is to return to her prison before the 16th of this month. I saw her here very much afflicted for some expressions of a letter that you had written to your uncle, and which she takes more heavily than all the trouble which she hath met with herself, or whereof she is yet in hazard. I know not how it is, but I am very sure you would not willingly write or do anything to the increasing of her sorrows. It is like she may be afraid lest French liberty should spoil a good Christian education. End quote. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 30, Number 113. End footnote. In the same letter he says, quote, Your uncle Lethome went south eight days ago to the drawing of your tithes, and we expect both him and your mother here sometime this week. End quote. Before the time appointed for Lady Caver's returning to prison in Stirling Castle arrived, a petition was presented to a committee of the Privy Council praying for the extension of the period of her liberty, but the prayer was refused. She accordingly again became a prisoner, being, however, permitted to take her children to Stirling where they were to attend the school and where she would probably have frequent opportunities of seeing them, this would in some degree alleviate the hardships of her confinement. Mr. Gladstains, in a letter to Sir William, who was then at Paris, dated October 23, 1683, thus writes, Your mother went from this on Saturday, was eight days, to re-enter her prison in Stirling Castle. There was an address made to a committee of the council before she went away for continuing her liberty. Most of them inclined to favor her bill, but did not think their power full enough for granting it till a more numerous meeting of the Hale Council, which is not to be till the 8th of November. Archibald and John went west with her to Stirling School. James and Tom were left at Cavers till Jamie recovered of a little distemper, whereof now I hear he has grown better. Your sister was left here till your mother considered whether it were better to put her to a school here or take her west with a woman to teach her there. End quote. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 30, Number 113. The letter is addressed on the back for the Laird of Cavers, Douglas. End footnote. From the mitigated tone in which the Committee of the Privy Council expressed themselves regarding Lady Cavers, 
One would be prepared to anticipate that at the meeting of council on the 8th of November the period of her temporary liberty would be prolonged, but such was not the case. She continued lying in prison for more than a year longer. Depressed, though not subdued, by long and close confinement, by the impoverished circumstances of herself and her children, and by the weak state of health to which she was reduced, she presented a petition to the Privy Council praying them to remit her fine or favorably to, re to represent her case to His Majesty or to allow her to obtain her jointure for the support of herself and her children. The petition is as follows, quote, Unto the Right Honorable, the Lords of His Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, the petition of the Lady Cavers humbly showeth, that whereas by your Lordship's sentence upon the 13th day of November 1682 she was fined in 500 pounds sterling and committed prince prisoner to the castle of Stirling until the same were paid, she does now with all humility represent to your Lordships that the said decree was founded singly upon her declining to give her oath upon the points of the, of the libel, which she did not out of any contumacy but from a tenderness she hath ever naturally had of giving an oath in any case, but will not decline the most exact and most strict trial in the matters of which she was accused, and is so conscious of her own innocence that she doubts not but upon such trial it will appear she was misrepresented to your lordships by misinformations, proceeding either of malice or mistake, to which she is the more exposed, being a person living abstract from all company, employing her time in the education of her numerous fatherless children. And she further humbly represents to your lordships the meanness and smallness of her estate, which consists only of a jointure not exceeding 150 pounds sterling a year, that she is in debt and stands bound by an old settlement with her children's friends to aliment her younger children, whereof there are five, by which it is more than evident to your lordships that unless your lordships be favorably pleased to grant her relief from the said fine, she and her poor fatherless children, who are the issue of a family who for many ages have served their king and country faithfully and honorably, will be reduced not only to ruin, but downright starvation. She hath also suffered a long and tedious imprisonment, by which both her health and estate are exceedingly impaired, and it is firmly resolved in all time coming to live inoffensively to the whole world, educating her children and enjoying herself in her recluse and desolate condition without meddling with any persons or affairs in the world. May it therefore please your lordships to take the premises into your serious consideration and in compassion to the widow and fatherless remit her and them the said fine. Or, if your lordships think it necessary, that you will be pleased favorably to represent their sad and deplorable condition to his sacred majesty from whose innate justice and gracious goodness and clemency she submissively hopes for the granting of this her humble desire. And in the meantime, that your lordships, in your great goodness, will be pleased to permit her to intromit with her jointure for alimenting her, four, her poor five fatherless children, which it will hardly suffice to do in respect of the meanness of it and of the debt with which it stands already affected. And your petitioner shall ever pray, etc. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 33, Folio 69. Wadrow in the Table of Contents refers the petition to the year 1684.
End footnote. Affecting as is this petition, it seems to have been disregarded by the lords of the Privy Council, who, actuated by a hard-hearted avarice, would neither remit nor mitigate her fine. Her son, having about this time returned to London from his travels on the continent, footnote, Sir William had been, some time previous to his return, married to a French lady with whom he had fallen in love in his travels. For when he intended to return home, obstacles were interposed in the way of his wife and child returning with him. He was not personally restrained, but his wife and the child, which in consequence of its mother being a Frenchwoman, was considered as naturalized, were declared to be subjects of France, and according to the tenth article of the Edict of Nantes, which received the royal signature on the 8th of October, 1685, were prohibited from departing out of the realm. Sir William Turnbull, the English ambassador in France, in a letter to Lord Sutherland dated December 19, 1685, thus writes, quote, I acquainted him, that is, Louis XIV, also with Sir William Douglas's petition for leave for his wife and child to go into England with him. But this he told me plainly the king had refused. For although the husband, being not naturalized, might go if he pleased, yet the wife and child were subjects of France and should not have that permission. End quote. Dalrymple's Memoirs, Volume 1, Part 1, pages 122 and 123. End footnote. Her son, having about this time returned to London from his travels on the continent, she and her friends cherished the hope that by his intercessions, with some of the leading statesmen in London, the government might be prevailed upon to set her at liberty and to remit her fine. Mr. Gladstains, his factor, who appears to have sympathized deeply in her case, in a letter to him dated, quote, Cavers, May 24, 1684, quote, informs him of her circumstances and strongly incites him to exert himself at London to the utmost of his power to obtain for his mother relief. Quote, I am very glad, says he, to hear of your safe return to London. I heard from your mother the last week with some of her tenants that had gone west to Stirling about the taking of their land. If it were not that her restraint confines both her and the children to Stirling, I know the condition of their health is such as requires her and most of them to be at some wells this summer. I need not tell you with what joy she received the message which brought the news of your curators having resolved to bring you home this summer. The solicitous care and constant tenderness she hath ever had for you may gain your belief that nothing is capable of giving such ease to her present sufferings as the hopes of seeing you soon after so long an absence. She hath endured very much in a long and tedious imprisonment, and the restoring of her to liberty seems only to have been reserved for you as the fittest and most proper instrument for obtaining of the same. All things concur with that desire I know you have to perform so just and necessary a duty. You are trysted to be at London in such a favorable juncture when you have the opportunity of addressing yourself to our great officers of state. I do not know the methods you will be advised to take or what hopes there may be of success, but to every unconcerned person it appears very hard to shut up life renters and detain them in prison till they pay a sum of money which exceeds three years' rent of their estate without allowing them any part thereof for their maintenance. End quote. And after stating the proceedings against the tenants which have already been detailed, he says, quote, We hear that before the treasurer went away, Sir Adam Blair of Carberry and Sir William Lockhart of Carstairs 
were commissioned and empowered by the exchequer to uplift and entromit with your mother's fine for payment of an old debt due to them by the king. But if a gift thereof, at least some considerable abatement, were procured at London either for yourself or the rest of the children, it would make void that which is granted to them by the exchequer. Your cousin, Mr. Richard, did solicit the treasurer before he went out of Scotland that he might both grant liberation and appoint some element to your mother out of her own jointure, but he, the treasurer, then declined to meddle in the affair. It is Mr. Richard's opinion, if you duly attend the treasurer while he is at London, as he promised to him you would do, and diligently ply the business, that you may both procure her liberty and a remit of the fine. Castlehill may also be very useful to gain the Chancellor to favor your suit, and who, I suppose, is both well enough known to yourself and Mr. R.W., that is, Robert Wiley, end quote. Footnote, Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 30, Number 114. End footnote. Sir William would doubtless do what he could in his mother's case, but his success was less than had been anticipated. After using many means in private with influential persons, he at length, in the close of the year 1684, presented in her behalf the following petition to the Privy Council. To the Right Honourable, the Lords of His Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council, the humble petition of Sir William Douglas of Cavers, showeth that your petitioner's mother, having been several years now in prison for not going to the church, your petitioner is very desirous that she should be reclaimed, but yet such is his respect to His Majesty's government and laws that he will not interpose for anything that may be of ill example to others, and therefore he humbly offers to your lordships that because of her great indisposition, and that she may be dealt with by her friends who are now very remote from her, he may be allowed to be cautioner for her that she shall either live regularly, or else that within three months after the date of her liberation she shall remove forth of this kingdom, and not return thereto without special allowance from his majesty or his, his privy council, by which the country, if she comply not, will be freed from any influence she may have or any prejudice she may do, and which cannot be expected by keeping her in prison. And as this is a safe remedy, and will be a sufficient terror to others in the like circumstances, there being nothing so terrible to a woman as to leave her native country, her children, her friends and acquaintances, so the justices do ordinarily allow this to such as are even denounced fugitives upon this occasion, and particularly this was allowed to the lady Longformacus. Footnote. August 2nd, 1683. The lady Longformacus being pursued for resetting of rebels, and it being alleged for her that she lived at Berwick, the criminal lords ordained her to find caution to live orderly when in Scotland under the pain of three thousand mercs, or else to remove out of Scotland, never to return without the king's special license. And this course they took with other women pursued because they could not put them to take the test. Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 236. This lady was probably the relict of Sir Robert Sinclair, a first baronet of Long Formacus, who died in 1678. She was his second wife and was Margaret, second daughter of William, Lord Alexander by his wife, Lady Margaret Douglas, who was the eldest daughter of William, Marquis of Douglas. 
Douglas's Baronage of Scotland, page 250. End footnote. Lady Morriston, footnote, Lady Morriston, a pious and sensible gentlewoman who also was sentenced in August 1683 by the Judiciary, Justiciary Court to leave the kingdom before the 1st of November. She appears, says Wadrow, not to have been cited or any probation led against her, but summarily is banished for her request to the Gospel and sufferers. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 472. End footnote. And others. And your lordships will find it upon trial to be a far more effectual remedy than imprisonment, which being within one's native country becomes very familiar and easy in a very short time, especially to melancholy women who used to stay much within doors. And your lordships answer, end quote, etc. Footnote. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 33, Folio Number 68. In the Table of Contents, Wadrow marks this petition as written in 1684. End footnote. The tutors of Sir William had succeeded, it would appear, in training him up, if not to a hearty approval of the persecuting and tyrannical measures of the government, at least to an acquiescence in these measures from considerations of worldly advantage, although by doing so he could not fail to grieve the heart of his mother, whose earnest desire it was to see him following in the steps of his honored ancestors, who had nobly struggled in their day for the truths of Christ and the liberties of the Church. In July 1684, he took the test, which his father would never have done, to qualify him for acting as Sheriff of Teviotdale. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council, 25th of July, 1684. End footnote. And the style of the above petition breathes a temporizing spirit. But compromising as was Sir William in his political and religious principles, the only ground upon which he could induce the council to set his mother at liberty was his becoming surety for her, quote, that she should depart forth of this kingdom within the space of fourteen days inclusive after she should be liberated, and should never return thereto without his majesty's or the council's special license and that in the meantime, until the said fourteen days elapse, and thereafter, if she remained within the country, she should live regularly and orderly, and that under the penalty of nine thousand merks, Scots money, in case of failure, and farther, that she should make payment to His Majesty's cash-keeper for His Majesty's use of the sum of five hundred pounds sterling formerly imposed upon her by sentence of counsel, at least of so much thereof as is yet resting, and not discharged, and that betwixt, and the term of, next. End quote. Sir William, having been given the security required, an act of council was passed, December 24, 1684, giving orders for his mother's liberation. Footnote. Register of Acts Privy Council. End footnote. The money was exacted from him to the last farthing, and his mother removed out of Scotland within the time specified, retiring to England. These facts we learn from a petition which Sir William presented to the Privy Council, humbly showing that he had fully obeyed their lordship's sentence by paying to the cash-keeper and those having power and commission from him the sum of five hundred pounds sterling, being his mother's fine, and that she had removed within the space of fourteen days after her liberation from Scotland, quote, into the kingdom of England, where she still remains, unquote. And therefore, praying their lordships to 
to appoint and ordain the clerks of council to deliver up to him his bond as having satisfied and performed the same in all points. At their meeting on the 28th of January, 1686, the Lords of Council complied with the prayer of this petition. Footnote. Warrants of Privy Council. End footnote. Such was the issue of the grievous outrage committed upon the person of Lady Cavers, who was first foully slandered, then punished by a heavy fine, without proof of any offence committed, then thrown into prison, where she was detained till security was given that the fine should be paid, and who, even when that security had been given, and after she had for years been so deeply injured, was compelled to leave the kingdom. How unfeeling the rapacity of these unjust rulers! How contemptible their unmanly treatment of a lady whose helpless situation claimed for her sympathy and protection! But so hateful in their eyes was the taint of Presbyterianism, and so lost were they to every honorable feeling, that the most eminent virtue and piety in ladies of this persuasion afforded no security against their becoming the victims of the most flagrant injustice and oppression. The subsequent history of Lady Cavers has not been preserved, nor have we been able to discover the time of her death. Isabel Allison We have previously met with some of our female worthies who suffered great hardships, though not unto the death. We now come to record the history of others of them who were called to seal their testimony with their blood. Of this class were Isabel Allison and Marion Harvey, two young women in humble life, but of unsullied character and genuine piety. Their tragic and deeply interesting story is enough of itself to entail everlasting infamy on the bloody rulers who pursued them to the death, not for any crime, for they had committed none, but simply and solely for their private opinions which the council had extorted from them by artful and ensnaring questions. They were tried together upon the same indictment and executed on the same day at the grass market of Edinburgh. We shall give a separate account of each, beginning with the eldest. Isabel Allison was an unmarried woman who lived at Perth and probably did not exceed 27 years of age. Among her religious acquaintances, she maintained a high reputation for sobriety of character and enlightened piety. She had sometimes heard Mr. Donald Cargill and some other ministers preach in the fields before the Battle of Bothwell Bridge, but not often, field conventicles not having been common in the part of the country where she lived. The sermons she heard on these occasions were greatly blessed to her, and if not the means of her conversion, had confirmed her in the faith and fortified her for suffering in the cause of Christ. By the ministrations of Mr. Cargill, she had in particular been deeply impressed and had imbibed the peculiar opinions held by him and Mr. Richard Cameron. These two ministers, though different as to age, were one in spirit. Cargill had seen many years pass over him. His head had become gray in the service of his master. Cameron was in the prime of youth and had but recently put on the harness. Yet both were actuated by the fearless intrepidity which high principle and deep piety combined with constitutional fortitude often impart. With the exception of Mr. John Blackadder, they were the only ministers who, after the Battle of Bothwell Bridge, preached in the fields till Mr. James Renwick appeared on the stage. 
The other field preachers, having desisted by reason of the increased danger arising from the increased exasperation of the government, they and their followers thus became the special objects of persecuting vengeance, and the consequence was that, driven to extremity, they renounced Charles Stuart as their lawful sovereign and proclaimed war against him as a tyrant and usurper. Footnote. Cargill and Cameron, with their followers, separated from all the other Presbyterian ministers and people who could not go to the length of disowning the authority of Charles, or who had accepted the indulgence, or who, though they had not accepted it, continued to maintain Christian fellowship with such as had done so. Mr. John Blackadder, though one of the most intrepid field preachers, did not join with Cargill and Cameron's party, not only because he could not see it to be his duty to disown the then existing government, tyrannical as it was, but also because, though he would rather have laid his head on the block than have accepted the indulgence himself, he considered it wrong to separate, as they did, from the indulged ministers. Between the Cameronians and the indulged party, much bitterness and animosity prevailed. Blackadder, who occupied a middle position between the two parties, was anxious to compose their differences and to prevent them, if he could not unite them, from receding further from each other, a very laudable undertaking, but very fruitless in its results, as too frequently happens in regard to the efforts of peacemakers to allay the contentious and to, to allay the contentions and heal the divisions which arise even among good men in this world of strife. End footnote. To this party we have said Isabel Allison belonged and it was for holding their principles in regard to the unlawfulness of the then existing civil government that she was doomed to undergo a traitor's death. These principles, as we learned from herself, she had been led to embrace from the severities exercised by the curates of Perth upon the Presbyterians in that place, and from the cruelty of the government in publicly executing many of the Presbyterians in the grass market of Edinburgh, and sending soldiers through the country to oppress and murder the poor, inoffensive people. But while holding these sentiments, she held them quietly, there being no evidence that she had endeavored to propagate them in any way, either by calm representation or by inflammatory speeches. Nor had the government any ground for alarm from any influence which a female in so humble a condition of life could have in weakening or undermining their authority. She was first apprehended for the freedom of her remarks upon the harsh treatment to which some religious non-conforming people in Perth were subjected, and when brought before the magistrates of that town they had nothing else than this of which to accuse her, till, in her simplicity, she voluntarily confessed that she had conversed with some whom the government had denounced rebels, by which she had exposed herself to heavy penalties. Having been examined, she was dismissed by the magistrates, but not long after she was apprehended in her chamber at Perth by a party of soldiers in execution of an order from the Privy Council and carried to Edinburgh where she was thrown into prison. She was next brought before a committee of the Privy Council who, having no evidence that she had violated the laws then in force against nonconformists, proceeded in the true spirit of the Inquisition to put her to entrapping questions with the view of extracting matter which might form the ground of criminal procedure against her. Beside the injustice of this treatment in itself, the heartless levity with which her examination was conducted, and the attempts made at one time to overawe a young inexperienced female by threatenings, 
and at another time to coax her by promises and commendations was in the highest degree disgraceful to the Privy Council. But though her life was at stake, she was in no wise daunted by the presence of her persecutors. She retained her self-possession in the novel and embarrassing circumstances in which she was placed, and the pointed answers she returned to the questions put to her, though they show on the one that on one or two points she had adopted extreme opinions, are yet highly creditable not only to the integrity of her character, but to the soundness of her judgment, while her whole demeanor was marked by a propriety and dignity above her station, and which stand favorably contrasted with the behavior of the lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, who, as Wadrow observes, acted the buffoon instead of maintaining the decorum and dignity which became their high office. Indeed, the wisdom and self-possession with which, without premeditation, she answered the questions put to her by the council is so striking that we cannot resist the impression that the promise which the Savior made to his disciples when brought into such circumstances was remarkably verified in her case. Quote, And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. End quote. Matthew 10, verses 18 and 19. The questions put to her by the Privy Council and the answers she returned, which we give entire, are as follows. With PC, meaning Privy Council, and IA, meaning Isabel Allison. PC, where do you live? At St. Johnstown? Footnote, the old name of Perth. End footnote. IA, yes. P.C. What is your occupation? To this question she returned no answer. Bishop Patterson. Have you conversed with Mr. Donald Cargill? I.A. Sir, you seem to me a man whom I have no clearness to speak to. He desired another member of the council to put the same question, which being done, she answered, I have seen him, and I wish that I had seen him oftener. P.C. Do you own what he has done against the civil magistrate? I.A. I do own it. P.C. Can you read the Bible? I.A. Yes. P.C. Do you know the duty we owe to the civil magistrate? I.A. When the magistrate carrieth the sword for God according to what the scripture calls for, we owe him all due reverence. But when magistrates overturn the work of God and set themselves in opposition to him, it is the duty of his servants to execute his laws and ordinances on them. P.C. Do you own the Sanquhar Declaration? Footnote. This was a paper or manifesto drawn up in 1680 by Mr. Richard Cameron and some of his followers in which they disowned Charles Stuart as having any right, title to, or interest in the said crown of Scotland for government as forfeited several years since by his perjury and breach of covenant to both God and his kirk, and usurpation of his crown and royal prerogatives therein, and many other breaches in matters ecclesiastic, and by his tyranny and breach of the very legus regnandi in matters civil, and in which they declare war against him as a tyrant and usurper. About twenty of the party came together in arms to Sanquhar upon the 22nd of June, 
and after declaration was read at the cross, affixed a copy of it there. It is accordingly usually called the Sanquahar Declaration. From the place where it was published, what share Cargill had in the compilation of this paper is not known. At his examination before the Privy Council, he denied that he was at the emitting of it and declared that he did not see it till after it was published, but refused to say whether he had any hand in drawing it up. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 212 and 280. The Sanquahar Declaration, as might have been expected, infuriated the government against the Cameronians, and one of the questions which, after the proclamation, was usually put to the Presbyterians brought before the Privy Council was, Do you own the Sanquahar Declaration? If they answered in the affirmative, this was considered equivalent to a confession of high treason, and on this confession they were hanged at the grass market. End footnote. I.A. I do own it. P.C. Do you own the papers taken at the Queen's Ferry on Henry Hall? Footnote. The papers here referred to were what was commonly called the Queen's Ferry paper or Cargill's Covenant and by the government called the Fanatics' New Covenant. This document was found on Henry Hall of Hawhead in the following manner. He and Mr. Cargill, when traveling in the South Queen's Ferry by the Castle of Blackness about the beginning of June 1680, were followed by the captain of the garrison of the castle and taken immediately on their arrival at the town of Queen's Ferry, but were soon after rescued by a company of women. Cargill made his escape, but Hall, having in a scuffle with the soldiers been mortally wounded, soon after fell into the hands of a party under the command of Dalziel, and on his being searched there was found upon him an unsubscribed paper in the form of a covenant, in which, among other things, Charles is rejected from being king. It was generally supposed to have been drawn up by Cargill, with the advice and knowledge of only a few of his party, and was merely a rude draft intended to be sent over to the banished and refugee Presbyterians in Holland for their consideration, and to be laid aside or acted upon as they should advise. Hall was waiting for an opportunity of going over to Holland when he fell into the hands of the enemy. After this paper was discovered, a constant question, question put by the Privy Council to the Presbyterians brought before them was, Do you own the Queensferry paper? Wadrill's History, Volume 3, pages 206 to 212. And not a few were hanged simply for declaring that they adhered to it. Fountain Hall's Historical Notices, etc., Volume 1, page 284. The Zanquahar Declaration, mentioned in the preceding note, was drawn up in less than three weeks after the discovery of the Queensferry paper. End of footnote. I.A. You need not question that. P.C. Do you know Mr. Skane? I.A. I never saw him. P.C. Have you conversed with rebels? I.A. I never conversed with rebels. P.C. Have you conversed with David Haxton? I.A. I have conversed with him, and I bless the Lord that I ever saw him, for I never saw aught in him but a godly, pious youth. P.C. Was the killing of the Bishop of St. Andrews a pious act? Footnote. James Sharp, Archbishop of St. Andrews, fell by violence on Saturday the 3rd of May, 1679, at midday on Magus Muir, within two miles of St. Andrews. 
Saturday had been fatal to him, says Fountain Hall. On it, Mitchell made his attempt. Historical Notices, etc., Volume 1, page 225. End footnote. I.A. I never heard him say that he killed him, but if God moved any and put it upon them to execute his righteous judgments upon him, I have nothing to say to that. P.C. When you saw... When saw you John Balfour, that pious youth? I.A. I have seen him. P.C. When? I.A. These are frivolous questions. I am not bound to answer them. At which they said, You don't think that a testimony? P.C. What think you of that in the confession of faith that magistrates should be owned though they were heathens? I.A. It was another matter than when those who seem to own the truth have now overturned it and made themselves avowed enemies to it. P.C. Who should be the judge of these things? I.A. The scriptures of truth and the Spirit of God and not men that have overturned the work themselves. P.C. Do you know the two Hendersons that murdered the Lord St. Andrews? I.A. I never knew any Lord St. Andrews. P.C. Mr. James Sharp, if you call him so. I.A. I never thought it murder, but if God moved and stirred them up to execute his righteous judgment upon him, I have nothing to say to that. P.C. Whether or not will you own all that you have said, for you will be put to own it in the grass market. And they expressed their regret that she should put her life in hazard in such a quarrel. I.A. I think my life little enough in the quarrel of owning my Lord and Master's sweet truths. For he hath freed me from everlasting wrath and redeemed me. And as for my body, it is at his disposal. P.C. You do not follow the Lord's practice in that anent Pilate. I.A. Christ owned his kingly office when he was questioned on it. And he told them he was a king, and for that end was he born. And it is for that we are called in question this day, the owning of his kingly government. Bishop Patterson, we own it. I.A. We have found the sad consequence of the contrary. Bishop Patterson, I pity you for the loss of your life. I.A. You have done me much more hurt than the loss of my life, or all the lives you and they have taken for it hath much more affected me that many souls have been killed by your doctrine. Bishop Patterson, wherein is our doctrine erroneous? I.A. That has been better debated already than a poor lass can debate it. P.C. Your ministers do not approve of these things, and you have said more than some of your ministers, for your ministers have brought you to these opinions and left you there. I.A. You have cast in baits among the ministers and hurled them aside, and although ministers say one thing today and another tomorrow, we are not obliged to follow them in that. P.C. We pity you, for we find reason and a quick wit in you, and would have you to take the matter into consideration. I.A. I have been advising on it these seven years, and I hope not to change now. P.C. Do you lecture any? asked they mockingly. I.A. Quakers used to do so. P.C. Do you own Presbyterian principles? I.A. I do. P.C. Are you distempered? I.A. I was always solid in the wit that God has given me.
PC. What is your name? IA. Since you have staged me, you might remember my name, for I have told you already and will not always be telling you. One of them said, May you not tell us your name? Then one of themselves told it. Footnote. Cloud of Witnesses, pages 85 to 87. From these answers, the council had now discovered all they deemed necessary for instituting criminal proceedings against her for high treason. But what had they discovered? Merely certain opinions which she had adopted, some of them indeed extreme, such as it was natural enough for a young, unlettered religious female, in the circumstances of the times, to embrace, but which an upright and honorable government would have deemed it beneath its dignity to notice. Quote, there is no treason, sure, unquote, says one of Sir Walter Scott's characters, quote, in a man enjoying his own thoughts under the shadow of his own bonnet, end quote, and every man possessing an ordinary sense of justice will be of the same mind. The opinions of this female as to the unlawfulness of the government then existing could certainly do no harm as long as they were confined within the recesses of her own mind and the council had no evidence that she had ever given utterance to them even in a single instance, except in answer to the harassing questions with which they plied her. And yet, for mere opinions thus extorted, they resolved to pursue her to the death. She was accordingly next brought before the Lords of Justiciary on the 6th of December, 1680, with the design of bringing her to to own before that court the confession she had made before the Privy Council that the confession, thus becoming judicial, might be made the ground of a criminal process. Such was the constant practice of the Privy Council at this time. The one day to bring the Covenanters who fell into their hands before them and there involve them by inquisitorial examinations into a confession of statutory crimes, sometimes threatening them with the thumbscrew and boot if they were not free and ingenious, and the next day to bring them before the justiciary court, quote, where if they were silent, they were asked if they would quit the testimony they had given yesterday, end quote. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 276. From the confessions thus extorted, an indictment was framed, and a packed Jewet, having brought them in guilty, they were hanged at the grass market or the Galilee. Such was the mode of procedure which the government thought proper to adopt against this excellent woman. The questions put to her when brought before the lords of the judiciary and the answers she returned are as follows. L.J. for lords judiciary. Will you abide by what you said last day? I.A. I am not about to deny anything of it. L.J. You confess that you harbored the killers of the bishop, though you would not call it murder? I.A. I confess no such thing. Lord Advocate. You did? I.A. I did not, and I will take with no untruths. Lord Advocate. Did you not converse with them? I.A. I said I did converse with David Hackstone, and I bless the Lord for it. L.J. When saw you him last? I.A. Never since you murdered him. Then they desired her to say over what she said the last day, to which she replied, Would you have me to be my own accuser? They said to her that the advocate was her accuser. 
Let him say on then, rejoined she with spirit. Then they repeated what had passed between the council and her the other day and required her to say whether or not that was true. Yes or no? She answered, Ye have troubled me with too, ye have troubled me too much with answering questions, seeing ye are a judicature which I have no clearness to answer. L.J. Do you disown us and the king's authority in us? I.A. I disown you all because you carry the sword against God and not for him, and have these nineteen or twenty years made it your work to dethrone him by swearing year after year against him and his work, and assuming that, pow- assuming that power to a human creature which is due to him alone, and have rent the ministers from their head, Christ, and one another. L.J. Who taught you these principles? I.A. I am beholden to God that taught me these principles. L.J. Are you a Quaker? I.A. Did you hear me say I was led by a spirit within me? I bless the Lord I profited much by the persecuted gospel, and your acts of indemnity after Bothwell cleared me more than anything I met with since. L.J. How could that be? I.A. By your meddling with Christ's interests and parting them as you pleased. L.J. We do not usurp Christ's prerogatives. I.A. What then mean your indulgences and your setting up of prelacy? For there has none preached publicly these twenty years without persecution but those that have had their orders from you. Then they caused bring the Sanquihar Declaration and the paper found on Mr. Richard Cameron, the papers taken at Queen's Ferry, and asked, Will you adhere to them? I.A. I will, as they are according to the scriptures, and I see not wherein they contradict them. L.J. Did ever Mr. Welsh or Mr. Riddell teach you these principles? I.A. I would be far in the wrong to speak anything that might wrong them. L.J. Take heed what you are saying, for it is upon life and death that you are questioned. I.A. Would you have me to lie? I would not quit one truth, though it would purchase my life a thousand years, which you cannot purchase nor promise me an hour. L.J. When saw you the two Hendersons and John Balfour, seeing you love ingenuity or ingeniousness, will you be ingenious and tell us if you saw them since the death of the bishop? I.A. They appeared publicly within the land since. L.J. Have you conversed with them within these twelve months? At this question she remained silent. L.J. Say either yea or nay. I.A. Yes. L.J. Your blood be upon your own head. We shall be free of it. I.A. So said Pilate, but it was a question if it was so. And you have nothing to say against me but for owning of Christ's truth and his persecuted members. To this they made no answer. Then they desired her to subscribe what she had owned, but she refused, upon which they subscribed it for her. Footnote. Cloud of Witnesses. End footnote. The substance of the answer she had given, insofar as the court judged them criminating, was drawn up by the clerk into the following document, which they called her confession, and which was subscribed by the Lord's Justiciary. Quote, Edinburgh, December 6, 1680. The said day, in presence of the Lord's, Justice Clerk, and Commissioners of Justiciary, sitting in judgment, compared Isabel Allison, prisoner. 
and being interrogate concerning several matters, answered that she was not obliged to answer to the lords of justiciary, for she did not look upon them as judges, and declined their authority, and the king's authority by which they sit, because they carry the sword against the lord, and owns the bond of combination. Footnote. This was a bond or covenant for mutual defense, which Richard Cameron and about thirty more entered into and subscribed shortly after the publication of the Sanquhar Declaration. Among other things, it disowned the civil government then existing. It was found on Richard Cameron at Ayrsmoss, where he fell fighting bravely in self-defense. See Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 218. End footnote and owns the bond of combination subscribed by Mr. Richard Cameron, Mr. Thomas Douglas, and others, and adheres thereto the same being publicly read to her, and the fourth article of the Fanatics, New Covenant, footnote, that is, the Queensferry paper or covenant. The fourth article of this covenant runs as follows, that we shall endeavor to our utmost the overthrow of the kingdom of darkness and whatever is contrary to the kingdom of Christ, especially idolatry and popery, in all the articles of it, as we are bound in our national covenants. Superstition, will worship, and prelacy with its hierarchy, as we are bound in our solemn league and covenant, and that we shall with the, name, with the same sincerity endeavor the overthrow of that power, it being no more authority, that hath established and upholds that kingdom of darkness, that prelacy, to wit, and Erastianism over the church, and hath exercised such a lustful and arbitrary tyranny over the subjects, taken all power in their land, that they may at their pleasure introduce popery into the church, as they have done arbitrary government in the state. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 208. End footnote. In the fourth article of the Fanatics' New Covenant, being read to her, as also the declaration at Sanquhar, she adhered thereto, and said she saw nothing in them against the scriptures, and therefore she owned them, but refused to sign this her declaration, though she can write. Maitland, Daniel Balfour, James Falconer, Roger Hogg. End quote. Footnote. Records of the Justiciary Court. End footnote. It was now resolved to proceed against her before the Judiciary Court, and a libel was drawn up, founded solely upon her own confession. Her trial took place on the 17th of January, 1681. In the indictment, she is charged with receiving, maintaining, supplying, intercommuning, and keeping correspondence with Mr. Donald Cargill, Mr. Thomas Douglas, Mr. John Welsh, the deceased Mr. Richard Cameron, the bloody and sacrilegious murderers of Archbishop Sharp, and with having heard the said ministers preach up treason and rebellion. In it, she is further charged with owning and adhering to the Quote, horrid and treasonable papers, end quote, called, quote, the Fanatics' New Covenant, end quote, and the Sanquhar Declaration, which the above ministers and their associates, it is asserted, formed and devised, and with owning and adhering to the, quote, unchristian expressions, principles, and opinions therein contained, end quote. And it concluded with declaring that of the above treasonable crime she was actor, art, and part, which being found proven by a jury, she ought to be punished with forfeiture of life, land, and goods, to be a terror of others to commit the like hereafter. 
The indictment having been read, she was asked by the court if she had any objections against it, to which she answered that she had none. They next successively read the Sanquahar Declaration and the document called the New Covenant, asking at the close of the reading of each paper if she owned it, to which she answered in the affirmative. The indictment having been found relevant by the court and remitted to the knowledge of the jury, the jury were next called, who showed considerable reluctance to appear, and only came forward on being threatened with fines. Two of them absented themselves altogether, for which they were fined by the court. Footnote. December 22, 1680. The said day, Robert Campbell, merchant, and Alexander Hume, His Majesty's tailor, being oft-times called to have compeered before the Lord's this day and place, in the hour of cause to have passed upon the assize of Isabel Allison and Marion Harvey, prisoners, as they were lawfully cited for that effect, lawful time of day bidden, and they not compeered. The Lord's Justice Clerk and Commissioners of the Judiciary, therefore, by the month, by the mouth of John Bozzi, Macer of Court, discerned and adjudged them, and each of them to be an unlaw and a merciat of one hundred merks Scots, which was pronounced for doom. Records of the Judiciary Court. End footnote. And one of them had so strong a conviction of the iniquity of the whole proceedings that when after the court refused at his desire to exempt him from being a juryman, he was required to swear the usual oath. He trembled so much that he could not hold up his hand. Before the jury was sworn on being asked by the court if she had any objections to offer against any of them, she answered that they were all alike, for no honest man would take the trade in hand. The jury being sworn, she told them that all authority is of God, Romans 13.1, that when they appeared against him, she was clear to disown them, that had they not been against him, she would not have been there, and added, quote, I take every one of you witness against another at your appearance before God, that your proceeding against me is only for owning of Christ his gospel and members, which I could not disown, lest I should come under the hazard of denying Christ, and so be denied of him. End quote. Footnote. Cloud of Witnesses, page 89. End footnote. The probation then proceeded, but the only proof which the prosecutor, Sir George Mackenzie, His Majesty's advocate, could adduce, was her own confession which she had made before the Lords of, the, of Judiciary. This document was now read in court, and in answer to a question put to her, she owned and adhered to it in the presence of the jury. The king's advocate then addressed the jury. You know, said he, that these women, quote, uh, footnote, Marion Harvey, as has been said before, was tried at the same time and on the same indictment with Isabel Allison, end footnote, are guilty of treason. They are not guilty of Matt of matter of fact, said the jury. Treason is fact, said he, but correcting himself, he added, It is true, it is but treason in their judgment, but go on according to our law, and if you will not do it, I will proceed. Footnote. This seems like threatening them with an assize of terror. Quote, this relict of barbarous times was a power entrusted to the public prosecutor to bring any of the jurymen or a majority of them to trial for not having decided according to the law as laid down to them. 
of this absurd and tyrannical engine to intimidate the jury from deciding according to their convictions, Mackenzie made ample use. He no sooner observed any symptoms of hesitation or of a desire to befriend the prisoners at the bar than with a terrific frown he would swear that if they did not give their verdict according to law, he knew what to do with them. End quote. McCree's Sketches of Scottish History, 2nd edition, page, two, page 483. End footnote. He further said, making a feeble attempt to ward off from the government the odium of taking the lives of these two confessors, quote, We do not desire to take their lives, for we have dealt with them many ways and sent ministers to deal with them and we cannot prevail with them, end quote. The speech of the Lord Advocate being concluded, the jury removed from the court to the jury house to reason and vote upon the articles of the indictment and the proof, but soon returned to the court, and by their chancellor delivered their verdict in presence of the lords of judiciary, unanimously finding Isabel Allison, quote, guilty, conformed to her confession of adherence to the fourth article of the Fanatics' New Covenant and to the Declaration at Sanquhar and to the Bond of Combination, but as actor or receiver of rebels, they find it not proven, end quote. The Lords delayed the pronouncing of doom and sentence against her till Friday at twelve o'clock, being the twenty-first of the current month. On the twenty-first, she was again brought before the court to receive her Quote, doom and sentence for the treasonable crimes mentioned in her dite, end quote, which was that she, quote, be taken to the grass market of Edinburgh upon Wednesday next, the 26th instant, between 2 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and there to be hanged on a gibbet till she be dead, and all her lands, heritages, goods, and gear whatsoever to be as cheap and in brought to our sovereign Lord's use, which was pronounced for doom. End quote. Footnote. Re- records of the Judi- Justiciary Court. End footnote. Such was the bloody sentence pronounced upon this female, not for any act of resistance to the laws, but solely for the opinions she held, and which had been discovered only by the artful and captious questions with which she had been teased. But though condemned to die ostensibly for treason, she felt perfectly persuaded in her own mind that the real ground upon which her condemnation proceeded was her adherence to the persecuted cause of Christ. In her dying testimony, which she subscribed and left behind her, dated Edinburgh Tollbooth, January 26, 1681, speaking on this subject, she says, quote, The manner of my examination before the Committee of the Privy Council and before the Judiciary Court was, first, if I conversed with David Haxton and others of our friends, which I owned upon good grounds. Secondly, if I owned the excommunication at, at the Torwood and the papers found at the Queen's Ferry and the Sanguihar Declaration and a paper found on Mr. Cameron at Ayrsmouth, all which I owned. Likewise, I declined their authority and told them that they had declared war against Christ and had usurped and taken his prerogatives and so carried the sword against him and not for him. So I think none can own them unless they disown Christ Jesus. Therefore let the enemies and pretended friends say what they will. I could have my life on no easier terms than the denying of Christ's kingly office. So I lay down my life for owning and adhering to Jesus Christ, his being a free king in his own house, and I bless the Lord that ever he called me to that. End quote. 
Among other things, she expresses her adherence to the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant. Footnote. Like the testimony of the two apocalyptic witnesses, which tormented them that dwelt on the earth, the Solemn League and Covenant was gall and wormwood to the government. So deeply did they hate it that on the 18th of January, 1682, by act of the Privy Council, it, along with Cargill's Covenant and some other papers, were solemnly burnt at the Market Cross of Edinburgh, the magistrates being present in their robes. This stupid malignity is justly censured by Fountain Hall, one of their own party, while at the same time he betrays his hatred of the Solemn League. Some wonder, says he, to see their policy in reviving the memory of so old and buried a legend as the Solemn League, which was burnt in 1661 before, and set people now a work to buy it and read it. And for Cargill's ridiculous covenant they had about a twelve-month before this caused printed, though that was only in contempt of it. Fountain Hall's Historical Notices of Scottish Affairs, Volume 1, page 346. End footnote. And enters her protestation against all the violence done to the work of God for twenty years bygone. During the time which, which elapsed from her condemnation to her execution, the grace of God by which she had been hitherto sustained did not forsake her. She not only retained her composure and fortitude, but was full of hope and joy, accounting it her honor that she had been called to surrender her life in the cause of Christ. Quote, oh, the everlasting covenant, said, unquote, she says, quote, it is sweet to me now, and I would also say, they that would follow Christ need not scare at the cross, for I can set my seal to it. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Yea, many times he hath made me go very easy through things that I have thought I would never have win through. He's the only desirable master, but he must be followed fully. Rejoice in him, all ye that love him. Wherefore lift up your heads and be exceeding glad, for the day of your redemption draweth nigh. Let not your hearts faint, nor your hands grow feeble. Go on in the strength of the Lord, my dear friends, for I hope he will yet have a remnant of both sons and daughters that will cleave to him, though they will be very few, even as the berries on the top of the outmost branches. As for such as are grown weary of the cross of Christ, and have drawn to a lee shore that God never allowed, it may be, ere all be done, it will turn like a tottering fence and a bowing wall to them, and they shall have little profit of it, and as little credit. But what shall I say to the commendation of Christ and his cross? I bless the Lord, praise to his holy name, that hath made my prison a palace to me. And what am I that he should have dealt thus with me? I have looked greedy-like to such a lot as this, but still thought it was too high for me when I saw how vile I was. But now the Lord hath made that scripture sweet to me. Isaiah 6, verses 6 and 7. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Oh, how great is his love to me that hath brought me forth to testify against the abominations of the times, and kept me from fainting hitherto, and hath made me to rejoice in him. Now I bless the Lord that ever he gave me a life to lay down for him. Now farewell, all creature comforts. Farewell, sweet Bible. 
Farewell, ye real friends in Christ. Farewell, faith and hope. Farewell, prayers and all duties. Farewell, sun and moon. Within a little, I shall be free from sin and all sorrows that follow thereon. Welcome, everlasting enjoyment of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, everlasting love, everlasting joy, everlasting life. End quote. Footnote. Cloud of Witnesses, pages 93 and 94. End footnote. According to her sentence, she was conducted on the 26th of January to the grass market to be executed. An immense crowd assembled to witness the scene. Mary and Harvey suffered along with her. Five women of bad fame were also executed at the same time for the murder of their illegitimate children. Footnote. 17th and 18th January, 1681. At the criminal court, one Sibylla Bell and her mother are sentenced to be hanged for murdering and strangling a child born by the said Sibylla in adultery. Item. Three other women are condemned for the same crime committed by them on their bastards, which sentences were accordingly put to execution the 26th of January thereafter on them. As also, two other women were then hanged for their opinions and principles, disowning the king and the government, and adhering to Cameron's treasonable declaration. They called one of them Isabel Allison from Perth, and the other Marion Harvey, brought from Borrowstonness. Fountain Hall's Historical Notices, Volume 1, page 281. End footnote. On coming to the scaffold, she sung the 84th Psalm to the tune called The Martyrs, the melody most frequently used by the suffering covenanters in singing their psalms, as in some parts of Scotland has been handed down by a rude rhyme. Quote, This is the tune the martyrs sang when at the gallows tree they stood, when they were gained to die, their God to glorify. End quote. She next read the 16th chapter of Mark, after which she desired to pray at the place where she then stood, but the provost took her away to the foot of the ladder, and there she engaged in prayer. In this her last trying hour, God, in whom she trusted, did not fail to sustain her spirit and carry her unscathed through the fires of martyrdom. The greatness of her peace and courage and joy was such as strong faith in a reconciled God, and the unclouded hope of heaven could alone impart. Only one thing seemed to wound her delicacy, and that was the circumstance of her being exposed in the company of those five unhappy females who had murdered their own offspring. But this indignity she bore with meekness and patience on reflecting that her Savior was crucified between two thieves, as if he had been the most criminal of the three. She addressed a few sentences to the spectators, and her last words were, quote, Farewell, all creature, created comforts. Farewell, sweet Bible, in which I delighted most, and which has been sweet to me since I came to prison. Farewell, Christian acquaintances. Now into thy hands I commit my spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. End quote. On her uttering these words, the hangman threw her over, and her spirit returned to her God and Savior to receive the martyr's crown. We are not informed where her body was buried, but there is little doubt that it was disgracefully cast into that spot in the Greyfriars churchyard, which was the receptacle of the dead bodies of malefactors and into which the dead bodies of most of the martyrs who suffered death at Edinburgh during the reigns of Charles II and James VII were consigned. The ignominy 
which once attached to this spot as the burial place appropriated for condemned robbers and murderers has been obliterated by the sacredness with which as the last resting place of nearly a hundred martyrs it is now invested a large and handsome tombstone has been erected in honor of their memory bearing the following inscription quote, halt passenger take heed what you do see this tomb doth show for what some men did die here lies interred the dust of those who stood against perjury resisting unto blood and hearing to the covenants and laws establishing the same which was the cause their lives were sacrificed unto the, unto the lust of prelates abjured though here their dust lies mixed with murderers and other crew whom justice justly did to death pursue but as, to, as for them no cause was to be found worthy of death but only they were sound constant and steadfast zealous witnessing for the prerogatives of Christ their king which truths were sealed by famous Guthrie's head and all along to Mr. Rennick's blood they did endure the wrath of enemies reproaches, torments, deaths and injuries but yet they're those who from such troubles came and now triumph in glory with the Lamb from May 27, 1661 when the noble Marquis of Argyle was beheaded to the 17th of February, 1688, that Mr. James Rennick suffered, were, one way or other, murdered and destroyed for the same cause, about 18,000, of whom were executed at Edinburgh, about a hundred, of noblemen, gentlemen, ministers, and others, noble martyrs for Jesus Christ, the most of them lie here. For a particular account of the cause and manner of their sufferings, see the cloud of witnesses, Crookshanks and Defoe's histories. End quote. Beneath this inscription is sculptured an open Bible with the following passages of Scripture engraven. Quote, Revelation 6, 9, 10, and 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also, and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Revelation 7.14 these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 2, 10 Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. End quote. Marion Harvey Marion Harvey was a servant girl in Borlstonus. Her father, who lived in that village, appears to have been a man of piety, and had sworn the National Covenant and Solemn League. It may therefore be presumed that she had received a religious education, but it was not till she had passed her fourteenth or fifteenth year that her attention was turned in good earnest to divine and eternal things. Previous to that period, thoughtless about God and her own spiritual interests, she had conducted herself like thoughtless young people. Yea, she tells us that in the fourteenth or fifteenth year of her age she was a blasphemer and Sabbath-breaker. About this time, however, a decided change took place upon her character. Attracted by curiosity or following the crowd, 
she began to attend meetings for the preaching of the gospel in the fields, which had become very frequent in the part of the country where she lived, as well as extremely popular, thousands flocking to hear the persecuted ministers. These conventicles, as they were nicknamed, though denounced by the government and prohibited, under the penalty of death to the minister and severe penalty to the hearers, were accompanied with signal tokens of divine approbation, and among the many thousands who by their instrumentality were brought to the saving knowledge of Christ was the subject of this notice. The change produced upon her character soon became apparent in her life. She left off hearing the curates whose ministry she had formerly attended without scruple. She venerated the name of God which she had formerly blasphemed. She sanctified the Sabbath which she had formerly desecrated and she delighted in reading the Bible which she had formerly neglected and undervalued. Among the ministers whom she heard at these field meetings were Mr. John Welsh, Mr. Archibald Riddell, Mr. Donald Cargill, and Mr. Richard Cameron. In her examination before the Privy Council, she expresses how much spiritual profit she had derived from the sermons of these worthy men. And in her dying testimony, she says, Quote, I bless the Lord that I ever heard Mr. Cargill, that faithful servant of Jesus Christ. I bless the Lord that I ever heard Mr. Richard Cameron. My soul has been refreshed with the hearing of him, particularly at communion in Carrick on these words in Psalm 85, verse 8. The Lord will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. End quote. The two last of these ministers, as we have seen before, separated from the rest of the Presbyterian ministers, forming a party by themselves, and to this party Marion Harvey was a, a zealous adherent. Like many others in those unhappy times, she fell into the hands of the government through the malignity and avarice of a base informer. One of this class, named James Henderson, who lived in North Queensferry, and who was habit and repute in such infamous transactions, had informed against her Footnote. This person was, as Marion Harvey expressed it, the Judas that sold Arch Archibald Stewart and Mr. Skeen to the bloody soldiers for so much money. Both these men suffered martyrdom. End footnote. For which he received a sum of money, and when going out of Edinburgh to hear a sermon to be preached in the fields by one of the persecuted ministers, she was apprehended on the road by Sergeant Warrock, and a party of soldiers who, it seems, having by ensnaring questions extorted from her a confession that she had attended field conventicles, carried her to Edinburgh where she was imprisoned. Such was the first step of the bloody proceedings of which this humble female, who was only about twenty years of age, was made the victim. She was next brought before the lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, who had nothing with which to charge her except that she had attended field conventicles, and no evidence that she had committed even this offense except her own confession. To have inflicted upon her, in the absence of other evidence, the penalties of the laws then enforced against such as were guilty of being present at field conventicles would have been flagrantly unjust. But to rest satisfied with the perpetration of even this injustice was too lenient a course for the Privy Council apparently with the design of extracting from her self-criminating confessions on the ground of which they might take away her life, 
they proceeded to subject her to the same style of inquisitorial examination to which they had subjected Isabel Allison and they succeeded in drawing from her an expression of her approbation of Cargill's covenant of the Sanquihar Declaration of the killing of Archbishop Sharp, insofar as the Lord raised up instruments for that purpose, and of the Torwood excommunication. Her examination was conducted with the same inhuman levity as that of Isabel Allison. One of the counselors scornfully said to her that, quote, a rock, a cod and bobbins would set her better than these debates. End quote. And yet, says Wadrow, quote, they cast them up to her and murder her upon them. End quote. Such was the brutality of Dalziel that he threatened her with the boot, as she mentions in her dying testimony. Her answers to the artful questions of the Privy Council show that, like her fellow martyr Isabel Allison, she had adopted some extreme opinions but her behavior was dignified and compared with that of her lordly inquisitors. The following are the questions put to her by the Privy Council and the answers she returned. PC, meaning Privy Council, and MH, meaning Marion Harvey. PC, how long is it since you saw Mr. Donald Cargill? MH, I cannot tell particularly when I saw him. P.C. Did you see him within these three months? M.H. It may be I have. P.C. Do you own his covenant? M.H. What covenant? Then they read it to her and she said she owned it. P.C. Do you own the Sanquihar Declaration? M.H. Yes. P.C. Do you own these to be lawful? M.H. Yes, because they are according to the scriptures and our covenants which ye swore yourselves and my father swore them. P.C. Yea, but the covenant does not bind you to deny the king's authority. M.H. So long as the king held the truths of God which he swore, we were obliged to own him, but when he broke his oath and robbed Christ of his kingly rights which do not belong to him, we were bound to disown him and you also. P.C. Do you know what you say? M.H. Yes. P.C. Were you ever mad? M.H. I have all the wit that ever God gave me. Did you see any mad act in me? P.C. Where were you born? M.H. In Borostanus. P.C. What was your occupation there? M.H. I served. P.C. Did you serve the woman that gave Mr. Donald Cargill quarters? M.H. That is a question which I will not answer. P.C. Who grounded you in these principles? M.H. Christ, by his word. P.C. Did not ministers ground you in these? M.H. When the ministers preached the word, the Spirit of God backed and confirmed it to me. P.C. Did you ever see Mr. John Welsh? M.H. Yes, my soul hath been refreshed by hearing him. P.C. Have you ever heard Mr. Archibald Riddell? M.H. Yes, and I bless the Lord that ever I heard him. P.C. Did ever they preach to take up arms against the king? M.H. I have heard them preach to defend the gospel which we are all sworn to do. Footnote. Though Welsh, Riddell, and Blackadder did not join with the Cameronians in disowning the authority of the government, 
yet has the government not only refused to protect the nonconformists in hearing the gospel, but sent out the military to disperse, apprehend, and murder them, when so engaged in the fields, they asserted the lawfulness of carrying arms to field conventicles for self-defense, on the principle of the law of self-preservation, which is antecedent to all human laws, and which is, in truth, a law of God. End footnote. P.C. Did you ever swear to Mr. Donald Cargill's covenant? M.H. No, but we are, we are bound to own it. P.C. Did you ever hear Mr. George Johnston? Footnote. Mr. George Johnston was at the Restoration Minister of Newbottle, from which he was ejected for nonconformity by the Act of the Privy Council at Glasgow, 1662. He was a noted field preacher, but had accepted of the third indulgence granted in the middle of the year 1679. This accounts for the somewhat disrespectful tone in which Miss Marion Harvey speaks concerning him in her answer to this question. The disaffection between the Cameronians to which party she belonged and those who had accepted the indulgence was in truth about equally, equally cordial on both sides. Both parties, as is almost universally the case in religious controversy, acted very much on the lex talionis principle. If you disrespect me, I'll disrespect you. End footnote. M.H. I am not concerned with Mr. George Johnston. I would not hear him, for he is joined in a confederacy with yourselves. P.C. Did you hear the excommunication at the Torwood? M.H. No, I could not win to it. P.C. Do you approve of it? M.H. Yes. P.C. Do you approve of the killing of the Lord St. Andrews? M.H. Insofar as the Lord raised up instruments to execute his just judgments upon him, I have nothing to say against it, for he was a perjured wretch and a betrayer of the Kirk of Scotland. P.C. What age are you of? M.H. I cannot tell. They said among themselves that she would be about twenty years of age and began to regret her case and say to her, Will you cast away yourself so? M.H. I love my life as well as any of you do, but will not redeem it upon sinful, sinful terms. For Christ says, He that seeks to save his life shall lose it. Then one of them asked when the jury should sit, this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.